0: Of course, this Christmas time we are dipping into various accounts in the Gospels surrounding the Nativity. Last week we looked at the Magi, the wise men. But we didn't quite finish the story because it goes on from what we described last week to a horrendous attack, a violent attack of Herod upon all the young boys two years and under, the babies, in Bethlehem. So jealous was he, so fearful and paranoid was he over this one baby born to be king of the Jews where he thought, I'm the king of the Jews, mate. Don't you tell me about another one. Violence. I'm calling this the clash of the kingdoms. Matthew 2, verses 13 and onwards. Now when they, that is, the wise men, the magi, had departed, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream and said, Rise, take the child and his mother and flee to Egypt and remain there until I tell you, for Herod is about to search for the child to destroy him. And he rose and took the child and his mother by night and departed to Egypt and remained there until the death of Herod. This was all to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. Out of Egypt I called my son. Then Herod, when he saw that he'd been tricked by the wise men, became furious. And he sent and killed all the male children in Bethlehem and in all that region who were two years old or under, according to the time he had ascertained from the wise men. Then was fulfilled what was spoken by the prophet Jeremiah. A voice was heard in Ramah, weeping and loud lamentation. Rachel, weeping for her children, she refused to be comforted because they are no more. But when Herod died, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared in a dream to Joseph in Egypt, saying, Rise, take the child and his mother, and go to the land of Israel for those who sought the child's life are dead. And he rose and took the child and his mother and went to the land of Israel. And when he heard that Archelaus was reigning over Judah in place of his father, Herod, he was afraid to go there and being warned in a dream, he withdrew to the district of Galilee. And he went and lived in a city called Nazareth. That That what was spoken by the prophets might be fulfilled. He shall be called a Nazarene. Now we can see straight away that a principal intention of Matthew in recording this part of the Nativity narrative was to establish how this prophet from Galilee could be the Messiah. Because everybody knew that the Messiah was not going to come from Galilee, not going to come from a town called Nazareth, that tiny, insecure town, little village, really, high up northern Galilee, high up in the mountains. No, no, no. The, the one who was born Messiah uh, uh, and to be Messiah was, was, was going to be of a different birth. Indeed, as we recall from last week, this was Bethlehem to the south. It's a few miles south of Jerusalem, the royal city of David but Jesus in his ministry was known as Jesus of Nazareth. So Matthew puts this all together and explains, yes, he really was born in Bethlehem. He really does have royal pedigree, adopted into Joseph's family, the son of Mary adopted into Joseph's family. Joseph being his adoptive father was a son of David. So this person qualifies on that alone. But there are other aspects to the story that really underline Matthew's belief in the gospel of the kingdom, that Jesus the Christ, though a baby at the point of this story, is the Messiah and is going to redeem Israel and indeed beyond that, touch the very nations of the world. But in our story, we see a power struggle. The clash between a self-proclaimed Messiah, Herod, and one who is confronted by the true King and Messiah. Herod's drastic and murderous action to eradicate all opposition, the baby Jesus. This reveals actually a battle that goes on in our own hearts as well when we are confronted by the kingdom of God. Power struggles. I know we've all witnessed in the United States of America, at least watching on our news agencies, the mother of all power struggles between Donald Trump and Joe Biden. One vying for power, the other, and all that stuff just makes us want to tear our hair out. But behind, The controversies, the conflicts, the fake news, and everything else that was going on was a power struggle. Maybe right now, on this Sunday, as we, the final Brexit negotiations, of course, the negotiations are going to go on more than today, but that's what it was billed at the final chance. Is it a power struggle? Is that what's going on? We know that all kinds of power struggles are endemic in political life and those power struggles are sometimes well they're not very pleasant but the biggest power struggle of all the biggest battle is between the kingdoms the kingdom of this world and all its kingdoms rooted in the person themselves, rooted in our own hearts. The kingdoms of this world and the kingdom of God. And this is not like any other power struggle between two parties vying for power and position. It's the story of one kingdom, an unconquerable kingdom, the kingdom of almighty God. And all those lesser kingdoms, the kingdoms of self, the kingdoms of this world, And as these tiny little kingdoms rise up and shake their puny fist in the face of Almighty God, we can declare confidently that this rebellion and all associated rebellions is totally pointless. Now in our nativity story today, we have this openly displayed in Herod's vicious and paranoid murderous attempt to remove this tiny baby, Jesus born to be king of the Jews. Herod rightly understood that Jesus' birth was an existential threat to his power and to his position. And therefore he concluded he had to eradicate the threat. See, Herod made himself king of the Jews, but Jesus was born king of the Jews born from god whereas herod's kingdom was very much of this world and so it was an ugly kingdom played out on the political stage yes but closer to home played out in the extreme example of the battle between the kingdom of self and the kingdom of god the battle that goes on in our hearts daily and now we know this battle we know this struggle oh whatever our religious faith or if we don't even have any kind of religious faith we all know the struggle that goes on within when we know the right thing that we should be doing but we also know what we feel like doing and there's that struggle between we say the higher aspirations of the human heart and the lower pull of the human heart. The Bible describes the human heart like this. It is deceitful and desperately wicked. And then when we come to surrender to the kingdom of God, we discover that the kingdom of God is not dreadful, forbidding, overbearing, but it is enriching and uplifting. The kingdom of God lifts us up out of ourselves out of our natural tendencies, and gives us a taste of heaven on earth. That's why we call the kingdom gospel, good news. So as I'm saying, there are ultimately two kingdoms, only two kingdoms, the kingdom of God, which is divine, and the kingdom or kingdoms of self, which is human, the one from above, the other from below. But in Christ, the Bible says that God has taken us out of that old, ugly prison of a kingdom, the kingdom of darkness, and has transferred us into the kingdom of light and of love in the person of Jesus Christ. That's why we celebrate the coming of Jesus into this world during this holiday season and indeed every other day of our lives. Now, in this story we are to discern the battle taking place on at least three different levels first of all there's the earthly political level herod's kingdom confronted by the one born to be king as opposed to the king himself this title King of the Jews, was first given to Herod by the Roman Senate. He had to flee from Jerusalem. He went to Rome and they gave him this title, but it wasn't an exclusive title. Others held that as well. But when Herod got back to Jerusalem, he conquered it and established Jerusalem as the headquarters of his new kingdom, of his new dynasty. And after a while, when he'd established himself, he took that title, the King of the Jews, exclusively to himself. Why? Was it just that he wanted to show authority over the Jews and having been permitted to use this title to curry favor also with the Romans? Herod was always playing one against the other, playing the Jews against the Romans and the Romans against the Jews and the Jews against the Jews and the Romans against the Romans. I mean, this guy was so full of subterfuge, paranoia, deceit, uh, and he, he was just really, i would got to gotta, gotta tell you, a nasty, nasty character. But having captured Jerusalem, he established himself as the only king of the Jews. Now, you need to know that he deliberately moulds his political life and his per- personal projection of himself in a kind of messianic pattern. There's been a history of people coming to Jerusalem to liberate it, Uh, to build a temple or indeed to repair and restore a temple. And and this was kind of seen to be a picture of Messiah who had come to liberate Jerusalem, liberate the Jewish people, liberate Israel and establish a rule, a messianic rule over the whole of the nation and to be a great patron or at least somebody who, who supported the temple Herod did all of that. He set about, not exactly rebuilding the temple, though parts of it he rebuilt and extended it and made it into one of the most splendid buildings that we could ever imagine. In fact, in the Jewish Talmud, it says that if anybody has not seen Herod's Herod's temple, they haven't seen a beautiful building at all. It was a monument to Herod's own pride and his ambition. Now, he was not that popular amongst the Jews. There were, of course, the Herodians who who followed him. But they suspected him because he wasn't really Jewish. He was Edomian, um, maybe brought up to follow some Jewish practices. And publicly, I guess, he did as much as he felt he was able to do to pass himself off as a, a genuine, pious Jewish person. But no person who was a Jew, who was... Uh, an observant Jew, nobody believed that he was really genuine. All they had to do was look at his life. I mean, the Herodians were a byword in ostentation, luxury, and stuff which was pretty, pretty unsavory. This guy was so paranoid, so uh, jealous, and so ambitious, that it wouldn't be a problem for him to drop one wife, banish her and and her son, grab another wife because her name fitted in with some kind of political lineage that would give him an advantage. And then when he had enough of her, have her killed and anybody else as well. They said the most dangerous place to be in Galilee was in Herod's palace, especially if he'd lost favor with you or you'd lost favor with him or more particularly, if you were a member of his family. So even his grand building schemes to please the Jews The rebuilding of the temple, out the very front of the temple of the entrance, he put the Roman eagle to keep Rome happy. Offend the Jews, keep Romans happy. What a mess of a situation. And then in our story, we see an early example of what would later become common practice with Herod and the people who supported him. Murder. Murder. Intrigue, trying ever so desperately to cling onto power. The murder of the innocents, that's what it's called. And here we have a replica, a uh, replication of another painting by Giotto, who lived in the very early part of the 14th century. And Giotto manages to capture the pathos, the sheer chill. His use of colors. I'm not going to give you a lecture on the, on, on the, on the, on the painting, but the, the, the sheer chill, the gray, the colors of that, it sends a chill down your spine. And this desperate and violent attempt to get rid of political opposition, as Herod saw it, developed into a clash of the kingdoms that finally meant that not only the Herodians, but also those high up in the echelons of the religious systems of the day, the Pharisees, the scribes, and the others, rejected Jesus and an ultimate collaboration of Rome with Jerusalem in the confrontation and clash of these two kingdoms. And the end result of that was Jesus' death on a cross. But the ironic thing is, is that very death of Jesus on the cross, which was, should have been the last action to destroy him and eradicate him together, altogether, turned out to be the defeat, not just of the spiritual powers, but also of the earthly and political powers. And now we can confidently assert that Jesus Christ is returning again, he's coming again, and he's going to establish the full manifestation of his kingdom and all the kingdoms of this world shall have become the kingdom of God and of his Christ. That was the earthly level of clash and conflict. Now we're going to talk about the second level, another level of this. The first level is earthly and political human the second level is heavenly and spiritual and it is happens in a way that separates the true loyal spiritual powers that god created from those who foolishly rebelled against him in heaven i'm sure if you've been a believer for any little while at all you will get the very clear impression and discernment that from time to time, we're not just involved with earthly struggles. Oh yes, we are. In the time that we've had this year with COVID, there are many, many earthly and physical, medical, economic, emotional, psychological struggles that we have. And we don't want to over-spiritualize, but there are times in our lives when we kind of sense That there's another battle going on. That the true nature of what we face day by day in our day by day spiritual battle is actually a heavenly battle. And there are principalities and powers that don't mean us any good. I'm not asking you to become spiritually paranoid, but this is the biblical worldview. The spiritual realm is populated by heavenly sons of God just as God had an earthly creation humanity made in his image he also created a spiritual realm where beings were created to dwell in that spiritual realm these are called in the Bible Elohim sons of God and we know that they didn't remain loyal to God not all of them and so we have in heaven this kind of conflict between the heavenly sons of God and the spiritual powers that are loyal to God and the coming of God's kingdom into this world released an amazing battle in the heavenly realms. We get a glimpse of this in Revelation chapter 12. I spoke to you last week of the sign that appeared in heaven recorded in Matthew chapter 12, uh, 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 Revelation chapter 12 which was really an alignment of various constellations that were significant, a sign of Christ's birth we have in the constellation of the woman and the center of that, the sun. Here is a depiction of this, a copy of a depiction of this put in, in, in the form of the image of a the woman of apocalypse. She's given wings later on to fly away to safety. Above her head is a crown of 12 stars, and we know at this particular point of time in that constellation, that alignment, in the constellation of Leo, there are at least nine stars and then three other planets, and beneath her feet, the moon. The sun being in the center was a 90-day window. The the earth being at the bottom, at the foot of the woman, was an 80-minute window. Uh, So, yeah, Uh, 20, 20 weeks with the sun and... 80 minutes with the moon at the feet. But below the woman was also a dragon. And again, this correlates to constellations as they were known in that day. Two of the constellations which you could identify in today's modern astronomy were combined at that time to form one constellation known as the dragon. And we know that the dragon was lying in wait So as soon as the woman gave birth, he might be able to devour that child. And so Revelation chapter 12, verses 10 and 12 says this. And I heard a loud voice in heaven saying, Now is the salvation and the power and the kingdom of our God and the authority of his Christ. For the accuser of our brothers has been thrown down. Who accuses them day and night before our God? And they have conquered him by the blood of the Lamb and by the word of their testimony, for they love not their lives even unto death. Therefore rejoice, O heavens, and you who dwell in them. But woe to your earth and sea, for the devil has come down to you in great wrath, because he knows that his time is short. So we have this sign of the dragon being played out, the heavenly sign being played out in Herod's actions. As soon as that child was born, he is ready to reach out and to destroy it. But in Revelation chapter 12, the Bible says that this great war in heaven resulted in that old serpent, that ancient serpent who was called the devil, the one who deceives the nations, is cast down, cast out from heaven and so he may deceive the nations no more and that's good news for us as gentiles because of that victory in heaven which was which was uh, actually relating to christ's victory on the earth that means that you and i now not just the jews but you and i now can enter into the new covenant the covenant of god with israel how wonderful that this child born to the woman who would rule the nations with the rod of iron signaled the end of Satan's deception in the heavens and rule over the nations. So we thank God that that battle was won. Christ was preserved. And you and I are equally protected by that same Messiah, King Jesus. Amen and amen. So now the final, yeah, the final uh, level is what I really want to talk to you about today. That's the personal level, the heart level. When we look at the atrocities, both in our contemporary situation and in history, there are times when we are stupefied at examples of man's inhumanity to man. And I'm by no means comparing your life or my life with this wickedness that was brought to such ripeness in the life of Herod. But I do want to say this. At root level, we're all the same. And the struggle that Herod played out with all his pomp, power, and paranoia, that same battle is going on in our hearts. Did you know that? Because... The kingdom that we want to preserve is the kingdom of the self. We want our hearts to be governed by ourselves, by our own will. We put ourselves on the throne in this kingdom of self. Oh, we know that. Anybody with an ounce of honesty will recognize that we love it when we get our own way. And there's something in us that rebels against anybody telling us what to do. And when it comes to thinking about God, that's the ultimate surrender to say, God, you created me and I want to be in relationship with you because that's why I was created. I want to come home to you. But there is this rebellion on the inside. We realize that we have to repent and drop those things that used to give us pleasure or we thought were the things that would give us what we really wanted. And it takes an act of faith as well as an act of repentance to say, God, I surrender to you. And our story, the gospel story of the birth of Jesus and the life of Jesus and the resurrect, crucifixion and resurrection of Jesus draws our attention to the only one who can destroy the kingdom of self and bring us into his kingdom of light and love and power and freedom and joy and satisfaction. Walking in right relationship with God can you imagine what was going on in Herod's heart throughout the whole of this story that we read about in Matthew's Gospel what was the state of his heart dark self-obsessed jealous ambitious ruthless in intent to preserve his power his position his kingdom. Right there, we have all of our hearts laid bare, if we're honest. The heart is deceitful and desperately wicked. But the grace of God is sufficient to melt every hard heart and to bring light into the darkest places of the recesses of our souls. We try to cling on to power, don't we? Frankly, it's pathetic. I'm talking about my life now. I don't know you well enough to be able to say exactly the same about you. I know it's true of you in principle, but I can think of example after example when due to the residual rebellion in my own heart, where there are times when I just say, God, I know this is your way, but my way is better. That's why he's called Yahweh, because it's better to go Yahweh rather than Mahweh. Anyway, never mind about that. But this is an amazing solution God's grace and God's love. It can melt the hardest of hearts. Now, the thing about the kingdom of God is it's not demanding, it's enabling. It's not forbidding, it's forgiving. It's not off putting, it's attractive. Because it corresponds to the things that the human spirit really longed for. And the book of Ezekiel gives us this wonderful prophecy of the new covenant. The kingdom of God is a kingdom of new covenant. The old covenant served its purpose. But the new covenant extends beyond the physical nation of Israel. And we are brought into that Relationship with God brought into the covenant of Israel in a new covenant that brings both Jew and Gentile into right relationship with God and with each other. Ezekiel's promise of God is this. I will put a new heart within you and give you a new spirit. I will sprinkle clean water upon you and you shall be cleansed. Only God by his spirit can cleanse our hearts from all of the evil roots and associations with the kingdom of self. And so when the clash of the kingdoms come into our lives and we're confronted with the will of God and confronted by the glory of God, not only do we naturally recoil from that, we have the help of God who will lift us up. One of the most powerful prophecies of Christmas story is found in Isaiah 40. Every valley shall be exalted, every mountain brought down. The rough places shall be made smooth and the crooked places made straight. But it begins with God lifting you up. He is not the oppressor, he's the uplifter. He is not the withholder, he is the rewarder. And when we surrender to his kingdom and and put down our weapons, And say, I surrender all. We're not brought like cringing fearful slaves in a spirit of being overpowered and crushed and suppressed. We are lifted up. Jesus came not to put people down, but to lift people up. I want to say to you, I don't know who I'm speaking to out there, I want to apologize to you, not for anything I did, but for for some so-called Christian did, who spent their life criticizing you, putting you down. The church sometimes has become so judgmental. God forgive us and God deliver us. We are there to encourage people, to lift them up, to build bridges to people, not to judge them, not to crush them, not to tear them down. For we have all sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. We all have a kingdom clash in our hearts. All of us want to go our own way. All of us want ourselves on the throne. But the moment we say, Colin, get out of there, or whatever your name is, Jesus, you are welcome. Maybe no room in the inn, but there's room in my heart. I surrender to you. When that happens, we receive an uplift, not just a momentary shot in the arm, not just something that warms the cockles of our heart, like a rich sherry on a cold day, or a hot cup of tea for those who are TT only what can warm our hearts eternally is the presence of Jesus Christ, the Son of God, the Messiah, who comes into our lives to give us freedom, redemption, hope, and ultimately glory in the presence of God. God's kingdom is a kingdom of love, not hate, not violence. Whatever happens, the bad stuff that comes along, God's in control of that as well. And he shall triumph just as God gave supernatural dreams at precise moments to direct Joseph and the family away from Bethlehem into Egypt, from Egypt back into Israel, but in a certain place because Herod's dynasty was continuing after his death. And that place was Nazareth, the place of obscurity. And the one who is the branch, that's the meaning of the word Nazareth, who was rejected, cut off, despised, put away where nobody could get to him until the moment came when he came to show himself. That Nazarene was the one who went all the way to the cross for you and I and now is crowned with glory and honor. And from that place at the right hand of the Father, he shall come again to put down every rebellion and to swallow everything up into his glorious kingdom of light and love. And every day when you go through conflict, every day when you face opposition, look up because if God took care of a helpless baby whose parents didn't have military, bodyguards, weapons, sat-nav, or a hotline into the palace to find out what Herod was plotting next. God stepped in. And you may feel alone, isolated, neglected, cut off, but God is with you, and he will guide you, and he will keep you, and he will protect you. Because he's already won the victory. Every spiritual battle has already been won. We live in the light of that victory. And as we look beyond coronavirus to whatever the next set of difficult circumstances may well be. We look beyond even those to the only hope of this world and his name is Jesus. And our relationship with him and our love for him and his love for us, walking in the peace of knowing that you are right with God, not because you are better than anybody else, but because you have come and said, Jesus, I surrender. I am, I'm not going to resist your kingdom. Come, may your kingdom come, may your will be done. So we as his people, we surrender to his rule. And until he comes again, there's a job to do. We shine. We shine in the midst of conflict. We shine in the midst of misery. We shine in the midst of testings and trials. And we shine equally as brightly as when we're going through seasons and times of blessing and refreshing. Which I confidently say are coming to your life, in Jesus' name. Amen and amen.